I think Tennessee gets the job done, even though the Gators have had their number. I just think the Gators have way too many issues offensively right now to win a game that could be a little bit higher scoring. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. Today is Friday, September 23rd. We hope you're enjoying the show wherever you're getting the show. It's on ESPN's YouTube channel, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. He's Mark Kubiak. I'm Greg McElroy. I'm not 100%. Man, I'm close. I'm feeling so much better. Thanks for all your well wishes this week. Uh, I don't know if those made me better, but lifted me up a little bit, lifted the spirits. I was in a dark spot there on Tuesday. I was like, dude, I can't talk. I'm sitting there talking to Mike Norvell, and it's like I am struggling to get through a 12-minute interview where I just have to ask a couple questions about a team I love. And I was just having the toughest time, sweating profusely, had to wear a hat against Chase when I was interviewing Chase Price. But you guys helped me push through it. I appreciate it. We are now at the end of the week. It's time to get into some of these matchups, just like we do every single Friday. We have a great game plan in store. We have a give me five. We're going to talk about the five biggest games of the weekend and the five games you don't want to miss. So you know that we do it. Same as every single Friday. Same as it's going to be this week. So without much further ado, let's quit wasting time. Let's kick it off. Let's talk about it. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, give me five. It's time to get into it, man. Love these matchups this week. The five biggest matchups of the week. Now, you're going to sit here and you're probably going to look at a few of these. You're going to look at the point spread say, Craig, how are you coming up with this? Because I think there's legitimate questions for some of the contenders here that are worth noting, okay? We're not going to focus on the treetops like, so many other programs. You know that with us. All right. We're going to hit it from every possible angle. And it doesn't matter if you are, you know, the FCS or the or Ohio State. We're going to cover you. Okay. But there are some teams in particular that I'm very, very interested in this week. And this might be the first opportunity to find out about them, which is why their matchups might make our top five games of the weekend. For instance, number five, Michigan and Maryland. Maryland. All right. My, my buddies from Maryland, you say it's it's Maryland, but it's like Merlin, the wizard. That's how you got to say it. If you're going to say it like, a, like an appropriate Merlin. Uh, I, I didn't know that, but sure. I, sounds good to me. Right, anyways, Maryland and Michigan. Going to be an interesting game there. This, of course, is in the big house. Um, a lot of us are still trying to figure out you know, who Michigan is. Okay, uh, Here's what we know. Okay, We know that their offense is named their quarterback. All right, J.J. McCarthy now going to be the starting quarterback. Hate what's happened with Cade McNamara. Hate that he got injured against UConn. He's going to be sidelined now for a couple weeks. Hate that he lost his job. I think this guy did nothing to lose his job. He just couldn't hold off the guy that has the higher ceiling. 
and just don't like how that whole thing has gone down. But ultimately, the right guy is now starting a quarterback. I'm great with that aspect of it. All right. What has McCarthy done up to this point, albeit against lower level competition? He's completed 88% of his passes, completed nearly 14 yards per attempt, which is pretty dang impressive. It's the best in the FBS, <laughs> I might add, amongst quarterbacks that have attempted at least 30 throws. And we know that he's got a great run game to lean on, too, because Blake Corum has been just as good as he was at any point last year. He, of course, uh, has been terrific. Seven touchdowns in just three games. So we know that this is a really solid offensive and passing attack. Like rushing and passing, they can do it both. I also think right now it, it might be, but last year's offensive line for Michigan, they won the Joe Moore Award as the best offensive line in college football. Um, are they as good as last year? I, I'm not really willing at this point to say yes, but I do think they are playing extremely good football, but we're not really sure what to make of them just yet. All right. We're just not sure what to make of them. All right. As far as what they're going to be going against on defense, I don't know, by the way, if Maryland has enough to be able to stop Michigan's offense. What I've seen from Michigan's offense, they're a well-oiled machine. If that can continue against Maryland, I will be very impressed. But what I don't know is whether or not Michigan's defense, which obviously replaces a lot of key pieces off last year's team. We all know the difference makers that have departed. They've looked great up to this point, but at this point, they haven't really been tested. Well, Maryland can provide that test. Talia Tungavaloa has been in complete command of Mike Loxley's offense. 77% completion rate, nearly 900 yards passing, six touchdowns, just two picks. No bad decisions that we've seen so far. Well, a couple, but nothing crazy from Talia up to this point. It's been steady within the offense and the emergence of a great run game has given this offense a whole nother level of balance. Hemby's been terrific here in the first few games of the season and last week's win against SMU, a game that I thought Maryland might be on the losing end on. That was a really solid win. So this team is tiniest bit battle tested. They have really good weapons on the perimeter. We know that this group with Jay Sean Jones and Rakeen Jarrett and, and what you have with Corey Dyches at their tight end, like they have some weapons. So there's some things that I think Maryland can do to really challenge Michigan's defense. Now, like I said, this is an indicator game. Is it the biggest, most sexy matchup of the weekend? No, not by any stretch. It's one of the five biggest games that I think are important because I really believe Michigan's a playoff contender. I just don't know if I know anything about them yet. So much like Oklahoma, Nebraska was last week where, hey, think Oklahoma's pretty good. Not, not really sure, but it's really be the first test. That's kind of where Michigan is this week. I can't wait to see what the Wolverines do here on their biggest spotlight game of the season up to this point. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And I think it could come down to which offense can put up the most points. And if it becomes a shootout, then, hey, man, give Maryland a chance. But I don't know. This new look revamped offense for Michigan certainly looks the part through three games. Just now as they step up in competition, can their level of efficiency rise along with the competition? Yeah, Michigan's averaging 55 points a game. And I know 
forget who they've played. If they come out against Maryland and are looking really good again and get close to that 50-point mark, are people going to look at Michigan a little bit differently? They're ranked fourth, but like really serious playoff contender, like might challenge Ohio State, might beat Ohio State. Is that what's on the line this weekend for them? Well, they beat Ohio State last year. They were in the playoff last year, you know? So I don't think anyone, uh, even if they went out this week and say laid an egg offensively, they score 31, they win 31-28. Like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and feel... Like Michigan, oh, well, see, Michigan's not good this year. Like, dude, first first chance to get, you know, first chance to play against a good team with a heartbeat, and look, they, they barely win. Like, I, I think that this is this is a real indicator game for Michigan. Uh, as I think Michigan's offense is excellent and has looked really good. Great weapons on the perimeter. Love what they have at running. But I think the offensive line, which was a question mark for me coming into the season, they've retooled. They look excellent. Uh, so I am not losing any sleep about that side of the football. I'm not even losing sleep about the defense just yet. I think this will be a great game. It's a great litmus test game for Michigan because I think Maryland's solid. They're a bowl team. Maryland will not threaten in the East. Uh, I don't think at least, but they're a bowl team and they can be problematic under the right circumstances. Maryland can be a problem. So where are you right now? This is really the first team that can kind of exploit you with their own offensive personnel. So we're going to find out whether or not Michigan's defense really is as advertised through three games. And we might not necessarily know because I don't love Maryland's defense. I think they're more athletic than people give them credit, but I don't love their defense. But we might have a better feel and understanding for where Michigan's offense is now that we raise the competition. But as we move forward in the weeks to come, we're going to learn more and more and more about Michigan. But this being the first time we're really going to learn something about them, uh, I can't wait to tune in. Definitely one of my top five games of the weekend. Game number four. This is, in my eyes, you know, game number one because it's the game I'll be calling. It's Texas A&M and Arkansas live from AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, or better known as the Metroplex, DFW, if you will. <laughs> Texas A&M, prior to last year, had won nine straight against Arkansas. It's crazy when you think about that, right? When you think about where the Aggies have been in the league, they have dominated no one more than they've dominated Arkansas. It seems kind of crazy to me because when I think about it, it feels like... like Arkansas doesn't feel like they were that bad for that long because they've been pretty decent the last couple of years. But you kind of forget, man, there was a stretch where they were atrocious. <laughs> so it's it's a testament to how one-sided this rivalry has been, but how Sam Pittman and company have really adjusted how they do things. And now I think match up really well against the Aggies in a lot of ways. Arkansas's transformation is remarkable. They are seeking their second straight 4-0 start. And that will be just their fourth 4-0 start if victorious this weekend. Only their fourth 4-0 start since joining the SEC. So dating all the way back to 1992, 30 years, they have only been 4-0 three times. With a win on Saturday, they can make it four. So this is rare air here for the Razorbacks. And they obviously did it last year. So what a job. Sam Pittman's done. Let's talk about Texas A&M's offense against Arkansas's defense because I think this is the matchup that most people are going to be paying the closest attention to. Let's talk about Texas A&M last week against Miami. All right, now they scored 17 points. No one's going to sit there and you know, you know, frame the football for the performance that they had offensively against the Hurricanes. It was okay. It wasn't. It wasn't great. 
It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination. But it lacked a lot of things that I could walk away from it saying, you know, that is a banner performance offensively. However, let's look at the positives. Are you make a switch at quarterback? Haynes King out, Max Johnson in. The Aggies had 16 first downs in the game. Uh, they also played their first game this season where they didn't turn the football over. Now, remember, against Appalachian State the week before, they had just nine first downs, which led to a 42 to 18 discrepancy in time of possession. So I think being able to extend drives a little bit more, maybe be a little bit more methodical, take some of the pressure off your defense, all these things will help the Aggies moving forward. Now, it's got to, at some point, result in a little bit more explosiveness, and it's got to, at some point, result in a little bit more, I think, efficiency as you get closer to the red zone. So here's the other thing. Against Miami, they averaged over five yards per play. That was better than average 4.7 against Appalachian State. So either way, slight step up, but not the step up that you're going to want as the competition continues to increase and they face teams that are built to play against them in the Southeastern Conference. Here's the issue. Arkansas defensively doesn't make any sense. Right? I'm just going to flat out tell you that right now. Because right now, Arkansas, they have recorded 17 sacks. That's the most in the FBS. 17 sacks, most in the FBS. Well, they also allow the sixth fewest rushing yards per game. 68 rushing yards per game given up. All right, pretty good, right? Like you look at that, it's like, all right, Arkansas, you better bring your lunch pail when you're playing Arkansas because this group's pretty good. And then you get to the back end and you look at their performance in the secondary and you're like, okay, I get it. This is how you move the ball against the Arkansas Razorbacks because they are giving up 353 yards per game through the air. That is the worst in college football. And if you want to look just a little bit deeper, you could honestly make a case, especially when looking against missed opportunities against Cincinnati, uh, even a missed opportunity or two against South Carolina. There were plays that were left on the field because quarterbacks were inaccurate down the field. Guys running wide open, but Ben Bryant just couldn't hit the guy in stride. Therefore, it's an incompletion. However, it could have been another 50-yard gain for the Bearcats there in week number one. So clearly, this is an issue that has been going on now for three weeks. And last week, I think it really raised its ugly head because Arkansas gave up 200 yards after catch. Now, if you're giving up 200 yards after catch, it's not a coverage thing. It's a tackling thing. So they got a whole host of issues there in the back end if you're Arkansas. Here's the positives if you're Arkansas and you're looking at it and you're a Hogs fan. You're like, well, how the heck are we going to get better? Here's some of the issues. One, you've been without three of your best players the last couple of weeks. Jalen Catalan, likely out for the season. I'm going to make that assumption. I haven't been told that, but it sounds like prognosis on his injury is not good. He was lost in week one. They haven't quite been the same since. Ladarius Bishop might be your best corner. He's been out. Miles Slusher, he's your nickelback. He's been out. So you've been without three of your top guys in the back end defensively. That's not a good place to start. So 
Maybe you get a little healthier here in the weeks to come. Maybe things shore up in the back end. But Barry Odom's the defensive coordinator. He's got to find some answers there in the back end because right now it's been a struggle. Let's quickly do AM's defense against Arkansas's offense. We already know what Arkansas is. They're a team that wants to run the football. That's really what they do better than anybody. They run it 61% of the time. Uh, that's the 10th highest rate in the FBS. Right now, Minnesota, they lead the country in rushing. Uh, they run the ball 68% of the time, but Arkansas, you know, a mere seven points behind, they're sitting there at 61%. Right now, 244 rushing yards a game. It's the 10th most in the FBS, and they've produced 257 passing yards per game. So this is a fairly balanced offense, 244 rushing, 257 passing. Rocket Sanders at running back has been off the charts good, but I also think K.J. Jefferson has a very underappreciated core of wide receivers. However, I'm not sure you want to challenge this AM secondary. That's where I think they're strongest. Their corners are excellent. Their safeties are excellent. That's where their strength is. If you're going to challenge this AM defense, I think you do so on the edges defensively at the defensive end spots where they're insanely talented, but they're also insanely young. So it's going to be a fascinating matchup here where both teams match up really well. Should be an absolute slugfest there in AT&T Stadium on Saturday night. All right, McElroy, I'm a Texas A&M fan. We've had one double-digit win season this century. We paid Jimbo Fisher $100 million to come in and change that. The App State loss hurts. We're going to Alabama in a couple of weeks. Feels like a win we have to have, or we're staring another eight, nine-win season in the face. Is that acceptable for me? Am I, I okay with this? I think it's definitely a must-win. I mean, if your expectation's 10 wins, <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you should have high expectations, but I would also say this, and I, I said this in the preseason shows. I said A&M feels like they're a year away. Like they're young at a bunch of different spots. They're young at quarterback, regardless of who they end up going with at quarterback. They're young there. Guy's going to probably be starting first full-time as a full-time starter uh, in their career. You just have some, un- you have some young players on the defensive front. Yeah, but should we be players. here in year five? I get, like that's the thing. In year five, it's okay after one year, two year, you know. But year but five, you, but it's, it's we year have a lot five. of these things addressed. It's year five, but I mean, they they're two years removed from a nine and one, I mean, they're two years removed from going number, being number five in college football and having an outside chance of being able to make a case that that you should have been in the college football playoff. Here's what people don't realize: winning ten a year is not easy to do. Like, there are not that many places where you just roll out of bed and you win 10 every year, and that's just the way it is. And I remember an SEC head coach telling me when Jimbo got the job, said if they expect him to win 10 a year every single year, they're going to be very, very disappointed because there are not that many places where you can just win 10 a year. It's just not. I mean, the depth hasn't been there. The quality of quarterback play hasn't been there. For whatever reason, there have been things that have been just kind of holding this Texas Tech, Texas A&M team up. Sometimes it's maturity. I mean, I think the performance against App State was as much about maturity as it was talent. So I think that it's – I can understand why there would be disappointment, but I also think expecting to win 10 a year is an extremely, extremely difficult thing to expect. I mean, you can't – however, you can't lose to teams that are better than you or that are worse than you. I'm fine if you lose to teams that are better than you, and you can make a case that Arkansas is better than Texas A&M this year. You can make a case. That's a, that's a very, very logical case that can be made there. But what I can't expect is I can't say that Texas A&M should lose to Mississippi State like they lost to them last year. Texas A&M should not have lost to LSU last year, 
who they were better than. Texas A&M should not have lost to Appalachian State two weeks ago, who they're better than. Like they cannot lose to teams that they're worse that they are better than. Like that's the frustrating thing to me if I'm a Texas A&M fan. So I'm fine losing the games that are toss ups, but I can't lose the games where I'm a decided favorite. And that's where I think I'd be a little bit upset if I were an Aggie. All right, moving on to game number three. Uh, it's Minnesota and Michigan State. Now, Michigan State kind of showed us who they were last week. Uh, I understand that a lot of people, and and I said it on the show last week, I thought it was going to be a really tall order. I thought it was going to be extremely difficult for Michigan State to go to Washington to get that win. Uh, that proved to be true. Um, not saying that like we're always right, but it just felt like there was something that was up in that game. It just didn't feel like Michigan State was going to get it done. And they had 65 years of history working against them when they went on the road to play in that football game. So it felt like it was going to be tough sledding for sure. But this is a game where I think they match up just the tiniest bit better and might get a better indicator for where Michigan State really is. Now, we know that Michigan State has performed extremely well as a slight underdog. That's exactly what they are in this game. They actually opened as the favorite. That line immediately steamed to the point where Minnesota became the favorite. They're actually favored now by three. So it's pretty wild to see that kind of movement went from Michigan State one and a half now to Minnesota at three. That movement's telling uh, in a lot of ways. Let's talk about Minnesota. Let's talk about the football, not the line movement. I don't. We don't care about that on Fridays. We care about the matchup. All right, Thursdays we'll talk about that, but Fridays let's talk about the actual matchup itself. Minnesota is seeing its fourth or its second four and zero start under head coach PJ Fleck. Remember back in 2019 they started nine and zero. All right. The Golden Gophers have outscored their opponents this year by 132 points. That's right, 132 points. The most in the first three games since 1916. You know how many points they scored, outscored their opponents by that year? You probably remember that 1916 Gopher team, don't you? Watching the tape, getting all fired up about what they were doing back at the turn of the century. Well, they outscored their opponents back then by 155 points. But who cares? Either way, in the modern era, that's an amazing feat with what Minnesota's done in the first three games of the season. What I love most, this is a balanced, balanced football team. I love this Minnesota team in a lot of ways. I think they are excellent. They're my favorites so far from what I've seen. They're my favorites in the Big Ten West this year. However, Michigan State has kind of had their number. They've won each of the last five meetings and they are 24 and six against Minnesota over the last 45 years. That's Michigan state's best record against any big 10 opponent in that span. Let's talk quickly about Minnesota's offense. All right. This is wild. Cause when you think about these numbers, I would not have thought this number two in the nation in total offense behind Ohio state number one in time of possession, number two in rushing offense, number one in third down conversions, and number seven in scoring, number nine in yards per completions, yards per completion, excuse me, and number four in first downs. Now you're going to say, Greg, who was it against? I get that. I've, I've asked the same question about Michigan. <laughs> I asked the same question about Michigan State actually the week before. So I understand that it hasn't necessarily been against quality competition, but so far, man, you can only control who you can control. And what they can control is their execution and their performance, which has been remarkable up to this point. Mohammed Ibrahim has been tremendous. All right. Remember, he tore his Achilles in week one 
last year, but he's coming off a 200-yard, three-touchdown effort against Colorado. He's second in the FBS right now in yards, rushing yards per game at 155 rushing yards a game. And he's rushed for 100 yards in 12 consecutive games. All right, that's the longest active streak in the FBS. Four straight games with multiple rushing touchdowns, the longest streak by a Big Ten player since J.K. Dobbins did it for five straight back in 2019. So Ibrahim is the straw that stirs the drink there offensively. Tanner Morgan, he's the quarterback. He's been pretty good. He's averaging about 200 yards a game, but he's definitely the secondary option. Will he become the tertiary option now because they lost their wide receiver, Chris Ottman-Bell, for the season? That's a huge loss because he was the one guy on the perimeter that you had to look at, and every defensive corner had to make the decision, all right, do we leave him single covered? Because if we do, we might have some problems. He was a guy that kind of held that safety to the backside. If you put him out there at X, there had to almost be two out there almost all the time. You had to always be aware of where he was on the field because he could stretch you vertically and he could create big plays. Guy had some juice. So his absence will be very interesting how they play him moving forward. And we all know what Michigan State's Achilles heel has been. It's been the pass defense. Well, if there's no super dynamic wide receiver for Minnesota to threaten that pass defense, are they going to be able to completely sell out against the run? Because if they can completely sell out against the run, I think Michigan State has a real chance in this game. But either way, this is a great matchup. It's going to be at the line of scrimmage. I can't wait to see whether or not Minnesota's offense can continue their efficiency running the football. Like I said earlier, they run the ball more than anyone else in college football. 68% of their offensive snaps are handoffs. I love that. All right. I love, too, that they're number one in third down conversions. These guys live in third and manageable. They never get behind the sticks. They never get off schedule. And they have been cruising here in the first three weeks of the season. I like Minnesota in this game. I think even without Ottman Bell, and they will miss him, that is a significant loss. Even without Ottman Bell, I think they're well positioned to take advantage of a Spartan team that still is just not clicking offensively. Because everything I just told you that was great about Minnesota's offense, their numbers defensively, off the charts good as well. I think they'll be able to stifle the run game. And I'm not sure at this point, based on what I've seen, that Peyton Thorne doesn't look like he's in rhythm yet to the point where he can throw their way out of a jam. So I think at this point, I lean in favor of Minnesota. They're just a little bit more well-balanced. They're a little bit further along in their program development. And given the fact that there's so many new faces on this Michigan State team, it's a great team. Really like them. Still really like them, even if they lose this week, and I still really like them. But I think Minnesota, this team is about three or four years in the build, and this is their year to really break through. And I expect them to make a statement on Saturday when they go on the road and get a big victory. All right, moving on to game number two. It's Clemson at Wake Forest. Of course, an incredibly great matchup amongst two teams ranked in the top 25. What an opportunity this is for Wake Forest. I think more than anything else, we know what Clemson is. They've been to the mountaintop before, but they have really, really, really looked good on defense this year. You're going to say, well, what about last week? They gave up 20 points against Louisiana Tech. Yeah, well, Louisiana Tech scored 14 points in like the last two minutes. <laughs> I don't care. All right, the defense is stifling. All right, so feel really good about what Clemson's done. I will have no takeaway if they're victorious this weekend. Even if they do so in dominant fashion, I won't feel that differently about what Clemson is. Clemson is who I thought they were. They've been that way for a long time. What I would, however, feel really good about 
is if Wake Forest were able to pull this off, that would be significant for Dave Clawson and his program. Why? Because this has been the kryptonite to Wake Forest's offensive issue, offensive firepower. Like Because if you look at everything that Wake Forest has done, and they have poured it on a lot of teams for quite a while now, Clemson's defense has been the bugaboo. All right, let's look at this. All right, let's look at the numbers here just for a moment. All right, against Clemson, and this is Wake Forest under Dave Clawson. Against Clemson, they are 0-8. They average less than 14 yards per game. They average less than two yards per carry. And they get sacked on 13% of their dropbacks. That's against Clemson. 0-8, 13 points per game. Less than two yards per carry and sacked on 13% of their dropbacks against everybody else. Here's the numbers against everybody else. You ready for this? They're 54 and 40. That's their win loss record. They score 31 points per game. They average nearly four yards per carry, 3.8 to be exact. And they get sacked on 6% of their dropbacks. So the numbers are shockingly different when they play against Clemson versus when they play against everybody else. The points per game doubles when they play against everybody else. The yards per rush doubles when they play against everybody else. The sacks, it's cut in half when they play against everybody else. Why? I have a couple theories here. One, I think because of how Wake Forest, their offense works, and they do that slow mesh kind of walk the dog type of zone read where they are allowing things in the secondary to kind of dictate what Sam Harton decides to do with the football. I think he's not the biggest guy in the world. I think it's hard for him to see as that pocket collapses around him and this pocket. And I think this defensive line for Clemson, they have an advantage over just about everybody they play, but they definitely have an advantage this week as well. Wake Forest offensive line, they do a good job within the scheme. They're a bunch of solid players. Not many of them are going to be spending, you know, the next 12 years in the NFL. They are just trying to survive when they are playing against Clemson. They just hold on, hold on for dear life, hold on for dear life and survive. Well, when you're playing against Brian Brzee and company, who's back, they're going to just smother Sam Hartman in the pocket and push those offensive linemen push their behinds right into the quarterback's lap, and it becomes very difficult to move, very difficult to see. And Clemson has had the correct recipe to be able to neutralize this offense for the last couple outings. Now, there's a couple things you got to keep in mind. Sam Hartman, I think, does an amazing job. We all know that A.T. Perry is an incredible, incredible wide receiver on the perimeter. He might... And I think Dave Clawson, I'm sure they spent the offseason trying to figure out, all right, how do we solve this issue? Last year, this game happened in late October, early November. Well, now it's happening here in September. Maybe Clemson's not the well-oiled machine that they are usually when this game falls on the schedule. That's one thing that could potentially benefit the Demon Deacons. And you know, maybe they've finally figured out a way to attack and move the launch point, change the pocket, not leave Sam Hartman in a predictable spot there in the back of the pocket at eight yards where the defensive line can just corral him 
and keep him in check. I think they're going to have to get creative because they do things the way they've always done things. It could be tough sledding for Wake Forest like it has been each of the last eight outings against the Clemson Tigers. Let's get to Clemson's offense against Wake's defense. Now, DJ Ui Ungalale, he he hasn't been spectacular. We're not going to go as far as to say that, but he has been better this year. And I think it needs to be noted that he's been playing quite a bit better and he hasn't been under as much duress. He's been pressured on less than 20% of his dropbacks. Last year, he was pressured over 30%. So they've done a pretty decent job of protecting him up front. And he's, as a result, I think, responded pretty well. Last year against Wake Forest, he went four of eight for 150 and a touchdown. He did have an interception on throws that traveled 15 or more yards downfield. That was, you know, kind of where he struggled last year. Couldn't really hit things downfield. Well, he did so against Wake Forest. Will he be able to do so this year? He's done a pretty good job up to that point this year. He's fifth in the ACC and feels like that's an area where he has significantly improved on some of the things he's doing. He's averaging seven and a half yards per attempt. He's got five touchdowns against just one interception. Last year, all the numbers nowhere near where they are this year. His QBR last year, just 43. This year, it's over 60. So he's playing better, but it's still not the quarterback play that we come to expect from the Clemson Tigers starter. Will Shipley is the guy that's going to really get it all going. He's been excellent, multiple touchdowns in each of the last few games. I expect him to continue to lean heavily on him. And if for whatever reason, they can get some movement, get some push. This is a Wake Forest defense that will move, that will change. We'll try to adjust and, and force Clemson to hit a moving target. They might get out of gap every once in a while, and maybe Will Shipley can rip off a big one. So I think it'll be a really interesting game. But until I see Wake Forest change offensively, I can't favor them in this matchup. I like Clemson to get it done, and I actually think Clemson will actually cover and, and win north of the 7.5, I believe, that's out there. It might be at 7. I'm not sure exactly where it's at. But either way, I like Clemson to win this game comfortably. And then finally, the number one game of the weekend, it's where game day will be. Florida is at Tennessee. Now, this is a game from everyone's childhood back in the 90s. It was a V game, right, in the SEC East. And it's a game that I'm really, really, really looking forward to. What's happened to Florida's offense? All right, I'm trying to figure that out as well. Anthony Richardson has just a QBR of 35.9. All right, that's a far cry from where he was when he had a 95 QBR against Utah. Well, the last two games, a total QBR of just 6.5. That's atrocious, by the way. Median is 50. 100 is perfect. Zero is awful. <laughs> like That means you don't, don't make any completions. Well, he's at 6.5. All right, so basically 93% of the college football world's better than him right now. And that's a problem, given his skill set and what he's capable of. The interceptions have been problematic, had a couple of bad interceptions against Kentucky, had a couple of bad ones last week against USF, including the one where he tried to throw the back shoulder there on the left-hand side. You can't predetermine those things. There's a young man that's still learning how to play the position. He better learn quickly, because if they don't start getting more from the quarterback spot, Florida's offense is really going to struggle. I think they have to start running him in this offense as well. The first game, 11 carries, 106 yards, three touchdowns. His legs, a huge reason why they were able to pull off that amazing victory in week one. The last two weeks, he had one run last week that was a 16-yard carry. 
You take that one run out, the last two games, he has 12 carries, 12 yards, zero touchdowns. It's just not good enough. I know that they've been concerned about his backup and they're concerned about putting him in harm's way. Great. I'm concerned about winning games. So I understand, hey, I understand your quarterback might be a first-round pick. That's great. And maybe he is in a little bit of self-preservation mode too, probably reading the press clippings a little bit. He got rattled against Kentucky, and he needs to get back on track because he has looked like a shell of himself the last couple weeks, and he's just way too talented, way too talented to continue to play this poorly. As far as the Vols defensively, they've been very solid. Now They played against Ball State and Akron. That's what you're going to point to. Now Pitt was able to move the ball a little bit. And they tried to kind of win the game through the air. And when Keaton Slovis went down, it became really difficult to do so. But either way, Vols have been, for the most part, pretty good. Uh, I wonder very much if Florida's defense can get the job done this week. Because one thing that hurt them last week was quarterback run. Hendon Hooker, he can run the ball, but that's not really who he is. It's a part of his game, but it's not the part of his game. So will they continue to take advantage of Florida's defense that is susceptible against quarterback run like they were able to do, like USF was able to do last week. I still, of course, think when you think about Tennessee, tempo is still going to be utilized. Downfield passing attack still going to be utilized. So there's a lot of things that I think Tennessee has going for it. We don't need to spend a ton of time on Tennessee's offense. You know what to expect from them. Mistakes might be a huge factor in this game. It's been a huge factor in each of the three Gator games. Mistakes have ultimately told the story of whether or not they've won or lost (laughs) and whether or not they're going to win or whether or not they're going to lose either. Because if you look at the first game, a couple red zone interceptions or a red zone stop and a red zone interception by Utah against Kentucky, they make the mistakes. They had the pick six that that gave Kentucky the huge lead, the near pick six at the end of half that gave Kentucky the short field when it felt like Florida was about to flex on them. Then last week, a couple interceptions, but the bad snap by USF to kind of throw them out of field goal range. I mean, it was just, it really feels like Florida games have come down to mistakes. Well, right now, Florida's not making a ton of mistakes. They're not getting hit with a slew of penalties. They've lost just one fumble. If Anthony Richardson can clean up some of his decision-making, that could go a long way. They've got to get more out of the passing attack. He's yet to throw a touchdown pass this season. On the other side of the ball, Tennessee, they have turned it over only three times. It's been pretty good, but they do have 24 penalties. It's way too many at this point of the season. Also, the special teams, just the tidiest bit shaky as well. So, you know, Florida will try to take advantage of the third phase as well. Some of the things we know Tennessee's been good. We know Florida's been average. What's Ventrell Miller's health? They're a middle linebacker for Florida. If he's unavailable, which I think he's going to play, if he's unavailable, though, that's a significant loss, knowing how he can diagnose and against Tennessee's tempo, him being able to diagnose and communicate will really help this Florida defense out an awful lot. So another thing too, final thing in this game, which team's going to be more physical? Because I've always felt like Florida's the more physical football team. But I think you'd be surprised when you really watch Tennessee. They've gotten more physical the last couple of years. That's a credit to what they're trying to do. You would think with their pass happiness, even though they're not really that pass happy, they want to run the football, their pass happiness, they'd be a little bit more finesse. Not the case. They will get after you in the run game as well. So I think... Tennessee gets the job done, even though the Gators have had their number. I just think the Gators have way too many issues offensively right now to win a game that could be a little bit higher scoring. So give me Tennessee to get it done at home. That place will be absolutely rocking too. be too much for the Gators to overcome.
This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. All right, give me five. The five games you don't want to miss this weekend. All right, let's start with Baylor and Iowa State. I love this game. Iowa State is seeking to become 4-0 for the first time since 2000. Think about that. The Cyclones' 21-season drought without a 4-0 start is the third longest among current Power 5 programs. The only ones that are longer are North Carolina and Pittsburgh. Isn't that wild? That kind of shocked me a little bit. When you think about Baylor, Baylor's averaging 235 rushing yards per game. That's fourth in the Big 12. They have 14 rushing touchdowns. It's first in the Big 12. And the Cyclones, right now, as crazy as this sounds, Cyclones lead the Big 12 in total defense. They're giving up just 234 yards per game. Their rush defense, just 60 yards per game. Since Matt Campbell has arrived in Ames in 2016, he has seven wins over AP-ranked teams when his teams are unranked. It's the second most of any coach in that span. The first, do you know it? Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State. He has only nine, so pretty good either way. Iowa State has forced eight turnovers a season, which is the most in the Big 12. And they've scored 34 points off turnover. So this game might come down to whether or not Baylor can be smart with the football and not put it in harm's way. I love this game. I think it's an amazing game. I'm going to take Iowa State. A lot of people saying, well, hey, Iowa State, you know, they lose so much. They don't bring back much. Here's Baylor. You know, they not really, you know, they're the big 12 champ. They bring everybody back along the line of scrimmage. I think playing at Ames at 11 o'clock in the morning is difficult. I'm just telling you, I've called games at 11 o'clock in the morning. It's hard to get up for games to call them there at 11 o'clock in the morning. I think Baylor comes out sleepy. I think Baylor comes out lethargic. I think Iowa State gets it done at home. This can be a really fun game to watch because I think it's going to be a physical, defensive showdown. All those people that say, hey, the Big 12 is about scoring points, no defense. All right, fine. You Ignore this one then. If you want to support your na- narrative, fine, go ahead and run with it. But ignore this one because it's going to be an awesome defensive output. Speaking of games that maybe won't be as awesome defensively. Uh, that'd be TCU at SMU, okay? <laughs> the fight, uh, the uh, Sunny Dykes Bowl, if you will, formerly of SMU, now at TCU. TCU is the only undefeated FBS program in the state of Texas. Isn't that crazy? Out of 12 teams there in the state of Texas, TCU is the only one that is unblemished in the loss column. They have not started the season by winning its first three games since 2017. They won 11 and three that year, I might add. That was the Kenny Hill year back in 2017. SMU has lost its last 11 home games against Big 12 teams, but 
if you look at what they did last week, SMU made a bunch of mistakes there in the second half of the football game against Maryland, but they probably got on the plane saying, man, we, we left a lot of points on the field. We left a lot of opportunities on the field. You know, we just can't make those mistakes in crunch time. They've been tested. So maybe they'll be able to apply some of the lessons that they learned last week into a game against better competition this week. I think TCU and Maryland are kind of similar. So I do think that SMU will be prepared to take advantage of the potential home field advantage. Uh, Rasheed Rice leads the nation in receiving yards, has 491 receiving yards. That's for SMU. And has the most receiving yards per game as a 31-game streak with at least one reception. That's the longest, fifth longest in the FBS. He enters Saturday just 18 yards away from breaking into SMU's top 10. So Rasheed Rice is the name that you need to know when it comes to this matchup. I love this matchup. Both teams are going to be exciting to watch. Both teams are going to score a lot of points. I lean just ever so slightly in favor of TCU. I think they have just a little bit more, just a little bit more on the defensive side of the football. They might get a key takeaway. They could flip it in their direction. Plus Max Duggan, I like him in this spot. Veteran quarterback. Not that Mordecai's not. It's an excellent quarterback matchup as well. So I love this matchup. One of my favorite games of the weekend. It's a coin toss game. But give me the power five in this particular matchup. Give me the Horned Frogs there and Sonny Dykes knowing how to take advantage of his former team. Let's go to the game that should be hosting game day this week. That's Duke and Kansas. <laughs> Duke is looking for its first 4-0 start since 2018. That surprised me. That might be the most surprising stat I've given you today because the fact that Duke was 4-0 in 2018 is shocking. Uh, while Kansas looks to end an even longer slump, they have not started the season 4-0 since 2009, and Duke leads the all-time series with Kansas 2-1. to one. They won their meeting last year, 52-33. to 33. Kansas did win the only previous meeting between the two teams in Lawrence, however. Duke's gotten off to really quick starts in the first three games. They've done a great job there in the first quarter. They're outscoring opponents 45-0 in the first quarter. That's the fourth highest point margin in the first quarters in the FBS this season. Their scoring pace slows, though, as the game goes along. So if you're going to get, if you, you want to ride Duke, if you dabble a little bit on them, they're in the first quarter because of how quickly they've come off the bus and been ready to play. But it's hard for me to look beyond anything that I've seen from Kansas this year, man. They have been awesome, especially offensively. They are going to score points. They're a high-powered offense. They're the third-ranked offense in the FBS as far as points per game. They're scoring 53 points per game. 22 touchdowns they've scored. It has been a lot of fun to watch this team. Now, if you have not seen Jaden Jalen, <laughs> Jaden Daniels too, Jalen Daniels play this year, do yourself a favor. You're going to be glad you did. Even if you take 20 minutes on Saturday to watch this kid play football, you will be so glad you did. He is electric. Absolutely electric. He's got the highest QBR in the FBS this season when he's given protection. I mean, he has really done a great job. He's 97.5, highest QBR in the country, throwing seven touchdowns against just one interception. They also hasn't been sacked. So it just tells you how good this kid is when it comes to creating and extending plays and making plays off schedule. They are excellent, Kansas is. On third down conversion percentage, they complete 69% of their third down conversion attempts. So I really like everything that Kansas has been offensively. Now, defensively, 
couple of things that they need to iron out, but I'm not sure Duke is capable of taking advantage of them. Give me Kansas in the home field. I think they get it done. Let's go to Kansas State and Oklahoma. Kansas State, a little bit of the look-ahead flu last week. They lost to Tulane. Oklahoma, workmanlike performance in the dominant performance against Nebraska. I don't think there's a team in college football that's given Oklahoma more fits than Kansas State over the last couple of years. The Wildcats, Wildcats are the only team to beat the Sooners twice since 2019. And Kansas State is the only school to beat Oklahoma and Norman in that span. Oh, you went eight and one against Kansas State when Venables was in his first stint in Norman as the defensive coordinator. So clearly, Chris Kleiman and company know the recipe that it takes to kind of get Oklahoma out of rhythm. Of course, totally different regime. That was Lincoln Riley. This is Brent Venables. It's a different regime, different era. I'm not going to compare the two. But if there's one team that has had Oklahoma's number, it's been Kansas State. Kansas State has not been dominant offensively at all in each of the last couple of weeks. Just 340 yards of offense in each of the last two games, 336 to be exact. The results could not have been more different. They scored 40 points and 336 yards of offense against Missouri. They scored 10 points on 336 yards of offense against Tulane. So they've really not been super consistent in the red zone. And that obviously are where games right now in college football are won and lost. Expect them to make it a little bit more interesting. But what I saw from Oklahoma last week, man, they are phenomenal. So, so proud of what I've seen from them, not just offensively, but defensively as well. You could tell that Venables, his fingerprints, are starting to find their way all over this defense. So far, they're getting major returns. Just 4.1 yards of play given up, 11th fewest in the FBS, and the Sooners have allowed less than three yards per carry. That's the 23rd fewest in the FBS. A far cry from what they've been the last couple of years when they were under a different defensive regime. So very optimistic with what I've seen from Oklahoma to this point. I do, however, think that Kansas State will keep it close. Maybe I'm crazy. I just think Kansas State has the right edge and the right mentality to play against Oklahoma. But Oklahoma feels like a team that is just getting started. So we'll see whether or not Kansas State can keep it close. And then finally, in one of the five games that you don't want to miss this weekend, it's USC against Oregon State. Ironically, Oregon State has been a house of horrors for USC in the last decade. They have lost three of their last five road games at Oregon State. They also lost at home last year. They got dominated 45-27 in L.A. So Oregon State has kind of had USC's number, of course, like I just talked about with Oklahoma. Different regime, different coaching staff, different players, a lot that's changed. And if you look at what Caleb Williams has done, what he's provided that offense, it's been phenomenal. I mean, he's got a great rapport, clearly, with Jordan Addison, he's already got five touchdown receptions this year. And he right now, since 2000, Addison leads all FBS players in catches. That's 178. Receiving touchdowns, 26th. And second in receiving yards with over 20, uh, 2,554. So it's pretty amazing what that young man has been able to do. All that being said, I might, I'm not an SC hater. I have actually a tremendous amount of respect for SC, I think they're phenomenal. They've been great up to this point, but I haven't seen a team that's going to run it right downhill at SC and challenge SC at the point of attack. Guess who will? Oregon State. Oregon State, I think, will make this game physical. 
and they will challenge SC in ways that they have not been challenged before. Any team that's going to want to make it a shootout against SC, that's advantage Trojans. But anyone that wants to churn it out, shorten the game, have long, time-consuming, clock-winding drives, that's going to play really nicely into Oregon State's hands. I think the Beavers keep it close. I'm tempted to pick the Beavers outright in an upset. I'm not quite bold enough to do that, but I think they keep it very, very close. And I think Trojan fans will be on the edge of their seat as this one goes final. So I think a good one's to be expected there in Corvallis. Oregon State somehow wins this game. That really, truthfully, eliminates the Pac-12 from the college football playoff, though, right? Why? Well, I mean, who else would they? Who else would be their teams? Your Utah, USC, or why well, can't USC else? run the table after that? Well, why where can't would they Utah? Be like, if you're sitting there and you're looking at USC strength of schedule, you know, and you're going, okay, well, what have they proven? They lost on the road, and you know, is a win over Notre Dame in non-conference going to mean that much at the end of the year? Well, is if they're UCLA twelve and one with an, if they're twelve and one with a Pac-12 crown, I think they'll be in the playoff. So, but I, I mean, I don't think this team is. You know, unbeatable at this point. Um, I also not yet willing to eliminate Oregon. As crazy as that sound, I think this weekend's going to be a huge challenge for Oregon. They better be really careful as they head up there to Pullman. I think this one could be really interesting. Um, but no, I like if you have one loss to me, you are not eliminated. Like no, you have two losses, you're out until proven otherwise. You're out. But one loss, you are in the playoff mix because time. It has repeated itself over and over and over and over again. If you win your conference in the Power Five with one loss, you have a very strong chance of getting in the college football playoff. So even with a loss this week, that opportunity is very much available to USC, which means I will not rule them out, nor will I rule out any of the other one-loss teams in the Pac-12 from getting to the college football playoff. Stop changing the narrative of the playoff. Stop. Stop trying to... You know, just eliminate the Pac-12. I refuse to eliminate anybody. Until they eliminate themselves, I'm not eliminating anybody. I will finally eliminate Nebraska from the playoff conversation. They are out, officially. Nebraska's out. Notre Dame's out. Nebraska's out. Notre Dame's out. Everybody else is still in. 129 teams still alive in college football playoff. Nebraska and Notre Dame, the only two that are out. All right, great week here. We survived uh, the virus of the century, whatever it was. By the way, uh, not COVID for the record. Um, Those that were asking if I had COVID, no, I tested negative twice. Um, Dude, I I don't know what I had. All I know is that if like you're trying to, I felt bad for a couple of weeks. I remember a couple of weeks ago when my voice was terrible on that one episode and everyone was like, I mean, oh, it sounded awful. Well, I've been just kind of just not 100%, just pushing through it, pushing through it, pushing through it, pushing through it. Then finally, like after the game last week, it was like I died. (laughs) So so if you have something right now, I suggest taking care of yourself because I didn't. And I certainly paid the consequences of not taking care of myself. I guess the biggest takeaway here is I'm not that young anymore. Like I used to, like in my 20s, like, oh, I can handle it. Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm fine. Like, no, at 34, like that thing brought me to my knees this week, man. But I appreciate you sticking with me. I appreciate you sticking with us here on Always College Football. It's been an awesome week as a result. We now here on Friday, 
starting to feel it, starting to get the energy going. Got some nice games to look forward to tonight. Got some great games in all three, four windows tomorrow. So a lot to look forward to here in the next 36 hours in college football world. For all of us here at Always College Football, he's Mark Kubiak. I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have an amazing weekend. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.